This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. Good afternoon, and um, dear listeners, this is Teachers Talk Radio. You're listening to the Sunday Twilight Show with Maud. It is four past five on Sunday, the 9th of July, 2023. You can join me using the chat function. We can discuss today's topic, which is decolonizing the curriculum with our interviewee, Danielle. This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. Tune in live at ttradio.org, or to join in the conversation, download the Podbean app and search Teachers Talk Radio. Follow the hashtag TT Radio. Tune in, talk it out with Teachers Talk Radio. Good afternoon, Ashita, late afternoon and early evening, fellow educators and dear listeners. This is my 44th radio show as your hostess, and I'm delighted to share this exciting experience in your company. But first, I have to introduce myself for any potential new listener. I am Maud, a French citizen of French and West African ancestry, and I have been living in the United Kingdom since 2008. I'm a professional educator working in a secondary state school in North London where I teach languages and humanities. I also have experience as a teacher in the charity sector. You can follow me on social media, on Twitter at profprofmfl. All views are my own. Today, I would like to focus on a topic that is extremely important to me in my practice as a teacher and also in my personal life. I'm going to be joined later on by our interviewee, who is Danielle Bourdet. She's a content writer and a writer who provides resources for French teachers who want to teach French in a cultural and linguistic way. So the podcast and discussion will be both on the topic of decolonizing the curriculum, because Danielle has been working on this for quite many years. This podcast is mostly relevant to parents um, who live in the United Kingdom, teachers who work in the United Kingdom, anyone who is interested in anti-racism campaigns, uh, anyone who is a human rights activist, and the curious and savvy. So first, the term decolonizing needs a bit of explaining, so let's go back to what it means. Decolonizing the curriculum means three different things. First, it means asking ourselves to look at the world we live in, to look at the societies we live in, and to question all the shared assumptions that we have about our world and how it functions. Decolonizing the curriculum starts by decolonizing the gaze. It is questioning the impact that colonization, but also slavery and economic inequalities have on our shared history, on our global economy and our cultural representations in the media and in the arts. Once we have that questioning and we have changed the way we look at things, there comes the second step. This is decolonizing what we do in schools and in education. It's 
mostly parents and teachers thinking about the implications that teaching a decolonized curriculum has on our diverse student body, where we have children from many different ethnicities with many different experiences of life. And what does it do in our pedagogy and in our achievement system? And the third step is about making people from ethnic minorities more prominent in the media and in the arts and also in all fields of life, making public and historical figures who happen to be from ethnic minorities more seen, more heard, and making artists who are from these ethnic minorities represented. So it takes three steps. But obviously the term decolonizing comes from the opposite of colonizing. And we all know that colonization started many centuries ago, uh, as far back as the 15th century, for instance, when uh, the island uh, of Gran Canaria were invaded by the Spanish and the local indigenous population was um, a victim of a genocide. Their language, their culture, um, the site they had inhabited and occupied since prehistoric times were robbed uh, for, for these people. So colonization has happened over at least six centuries. Now, decolonizing was a slow process that happened much later. Let's say around the 1930s and 40s. Now, decolonizing our thoughts is a concept that was first mentioned in an essay written by Ngugi Vatyongo, who is a Kenyan writer. He wrote an essay in the 1980s, so almost 40 years ago, entitled Decolonizing the Mind, the Politics of Language in African Literature. So he comes from, obviously, a literary and literature background because he's a novelist and essayist but he thought about language and he thought about politics in his essay. Um, you can also read his um, reflection on his time in jail um, in Wrestling with the Devil, which was published after he spent a year in jail. It's a prison memoir. So Ngugi Vationgo, a, a little bit over 50 years ago, decided while he was in jail for political reasons that he, he, he just questioned why he had been writing in English. He had been writing novels which were really acclaimed and respected in Kenyan literature, but it was always in English. And once he got in jail, um, because of his work as a writer, he decided to write in his own mother tongue, which is the Gikuyu language. And once he started, it's, it was opening um, a breach. And then his all reflection about decolonizing started to take shape. So um, he wanted to basically get rid of the legacies of the British colonial past. And um, he decided to also use his mother tongue, but also to question the Christianity he had been brought up in and uh, his baptismal name. So if we look at an interview he made, um, he was explaining that when he was in prison, he was really angry because he had been in prison, not by the British uh, government, but by the new independent African government of Kenya. And he was very upset because he was not 
a threat to society. He was just a writer. But he started thinking about uh, colonialism and the language. He was not issued paper and pen to write, so he had to steal the toilet paper, which was very coarse and hard, but actually very good for writing. So he ironically uh, wrote his um, prison memoir on toilet paper. And he explained that for him, it was not renouncing English as a language, because he's obviously multilinguist and um, he's happy to use English and he's happy to teach in English and he's happy to read in English. But for him, learning to uh, write in his own mother tongue was about being empowered. And he said, I quote, if you know all the languages of the world, but you don't know your mother tongue, that is enslavement. But if you know your mother tongue and add all the languages of the world, that is empowerment. So his thinking was that by using Gikuyu language, his mother tongue, he was becoming a free man, even though he was locked up in a prison for his writing. He says in Gugi Vatiango that languages and cultures should relate as a network of equals. So we shouldn't think that English is more important than any other languages and that Gikuyu is not an important language. For him, they are all equal and they should not be presented in a pyramidal hierarchical of unequal power relationship, which is still how it is most of the time. When we choose a language, we often think, I need to choose a language that is good for business, or I need to choose a language that allows me to speak with as many people as possible. Yes, that could be a motivation, but also um, promoting the culture and your personal heritage culture is also fundamental to yourself as a person. So he was also explaining, Ngugi Vatiango, that um, even though the colonizer, and in that instance, the British Empire, which had left Kenya by then, he said the colonizer was still having control over the culture because of neocolonialism. And he said that even though Kenya was an independent country politically, its economy is still controlled by Western powers to this day, even in 2023. And this predominance of Western economy has an impact on the culture and the psyche of all the nations which are still independent, but not freed from this colonialism. So when I started my journey in the decolonizing field, it was something I had always been aware but I didn't know there was a name for it. It's only when I attended a lecture at Goldsmiths University in 2020 that the word decolonizing came up. And I realized that this fitted with, with my worldview. And my worldview had been developed over decades of living in the West, whereas um, I am of dual ancestry. And I realized as a student and then later on as a teacher that I had to teach a very narrow-minded curriculum that was always putting on a pedestal the works of white male um, figures, uh, middle-class figures, and also Western figures. And it was done so often and so much that it appeared normalized. But when I started thinking about women history and um, when I looked into uh, 
all the female writers and, and all the people of colors were not broadcast or published or promoted, I realized that it was a conscious decision and it was actually very um, manipulative to pretend that there was no good art made by people of color or by women and that only male, white, middle-class figures were supposed to be in the curriculum. So it took me years to um, to just realize this. And decolonizing the gaze was a very personal process. Um, I, I couldn't name it, but once I had an introduction to that word, then everything fitted and came into place. And I started presenting, um, training and attending conferences where I spoke about decolonizing my practice as a teacher because that's what I can do because that's what I'm trained for and also this is the only platform I have my work in opening up the gaze and questioning the world we live in goes through pedagogy and teaching but it could be done in a different way if I was if I were a sculptor or a film director so any medium can be used as long as the process is opening up consciousness to how biased our education and our worldview has been for many, many years. So after the Second World War, the United Nations uh, via the UNESCO, so the Educational, Scientific and Cultural Organization of the United Nations, started to question the concept of race because we had just been through two world wars and a lot of um, um, the, the, the issues that we had to face in the world wars were about sovereignty and a racial construct. So the United Nations published a report in 1963 that insisted on the, the lack of scientific knowledge. Um, race is not scientific, it's a myth. No one is uh, not part of the human race and there's actually only one human race. Whether we are, have a skin of different shade is irrelevant. We are all just one. So dividing people according to their ethnicity and their skin tone or their hair type is completely unscientific. And it's been promoted by the United Nations ever since. But we still see how much racism pervades all our societies and how much it is institutionalized ever since. So the first step as a um, trained and savvy citizen is to try to eradicate racism because it's unscientific and it's damaging. I quote um, a book written by Ineke van der Valk, Racism, a Threat to Global Peace. It's available online if you check the International Journal of Peace Studies. And Ineke says, I quote, Ethnic minority groups are represented in public debate, in the press, in politics, in scientific literature and in school books by opinion makers originating from the majority group. It is crucial for understanding the phenomenon of racism is the observation that racism not only refers to overt and violent forms of social domination and exclusion, but also to more indirect and subtle forms expressed in daily practices, including through discursive practices. 
So what she's pinpointing at Inike van der Valk in her um, essay about race is that the way we present uh, knowledge in the media and in ed education is biased. It's biased by a ma majority. And let's say that majority is not actually a majority in numbers, because if you look at the whole population in the world, being white is a minority by itself. There's more people of color than people who are white ethnically. And yet they are the ones who have built up a myth that their ethnicity was something that was higher than the others. And they still use a lot of their power economically or uh, via the media to pro promote this ideology and to um, further inequalities. So as a teacher, I've started to develop a way to teach which reflects a decolonized way of thinking, which questions assumptions, which always asks, why is the world the way it is? And what can we do to make it fairer, more um, just, more moral, and also with a lot of equity, not just equality. So I developed um, what I called Activisions. And Activisions are just a pun, a play on word, on the two words activities and visions, because obviously I'm a teacher, so I need to do activities with my students. But also these activities are part of a vision. And this vision is opening up to um, opening, opening the consciousness of the students so that they realize that the world we live in is biased and that we need to change our mindset. So these activisions start from September all the way to July. I'm taking August as a holiday month. Uh, in September, it goes with the celebration of Afro Hair Day on the 15th of September. In October, there is the UK Black History Month. In November, I'm celebrating uh, famous French-speaking figures uh, of ethnic minorities. In that instance, it was Josephine Baker. But you can choose any other uh, Black or ethnic minority person who is talented in a particular field. In December, I offer lessons that offer a decolonized Christmas, where we question where Christmas comes from as a tradition and what it represents. Um, in January, we talk about the three kings the, in the nativity, because one of the kings was a black man, Balthazar. He was king of Ethiopia. In February, it's the Mardi Gras celebrations, it's uh, Shrove Tuesday, it's Pancake Day, but it's also how people have changed um, a very Catholic medieval tradition into uh, a regional local tradition that is way more inclusive. So I chose to talk, for instance, about Mardi Gras in New Orleans, in the USA. Uh, in March, it's a celebration of the Black Lives Movement because it's a movement that is uh, promoting the protection of Black lives facing police brutality. In April, it's a celebration around Easter, and it's also Easter in different um, places in the Francosphere, not just in France, because I teach French, but also in all the countries that have people who speak French. It could be Senegal, it could be Lebanon, it could be Canada, it could be the territories um, 
that were formerly part of France, any other country that has French and some elements of French culture mixed with their own indigenous culture. In uh, June, I celebrate other black and ethnic minority figures, and then I try to organize school trips in reference to that, to celebrate the end of the year with my students. And in July, I try to show um, that there is uh, people who have been victims of politics. And I try to give my students an idea about this. And I, I use the figure of Patrice Lumumba, but not only, I also talked about Leopold Sandar Senghor, who used to be the French um, Secretary of State and then the first president of Senegal, of an independent Senegal. So it's um, a calendar that allows French teachers and any history teacher or someone who does PSHTE to represent um, different perspectives on the idea of decolonizing knowledge and education. Now, as we are mostly educators or parents, we do want to give as many um, facts to our students so that they can also practice their own critical mind and um, just make their own minds. So it is important to uh, always address racism when we see it and to um, be very firm and strict that this is unacceptable. It is also very important to be inclusive and not just talk about our own experience, I don't just focus on uh, female um, or women of color. I also focus on people from the LGBTQ community and also people from the Roma or travelers community or people who have an Asian background or any other South American background. It's not just about my own personal history. It's the, it's the human history. And it, being human in all its representation, not just people who are um, living in urban cities, in very modern um, housing, it could also be nomads, people who do not have that lifestyle, because their their way of life is just as important as my way of life. And finally, as a teacher, we need to celebrate achievements of people who are from uh, the majority in numbers, but the minority in representation. So people from ethnic minorities, mostly. Um, what does decolonizing the curriculum look? If you think about institutions and structures, well, I'm going to give you a little task. If you visit a school, always check which ethnicity is represented. Who is um, represented in the cleaning staff? in the pastoral staff, and then in the senior leadership teams. Too often, I see schools that promote themselves as being very inclusive and diverse, and yet I see people from ethnic minorities more in the cleaning staff than in SLT, in positions of more power. So I, I would really urge anyone who works in a school to check the employees and see if they reflect the diversity of United, the United Kingdom's population. If you only have white middle-class people in positions of power, you do not have an inclusive school. So we need to model the behavior that we want in society. So if in your corporation you have a majority of um, people who are male in positions of power, you do not have an inclusive, decolonized company. It, it, it has to start from the top. 
Um, so my advice is always check who's in position of power, remove discriminatory school policies, make sure everybody is represented. If you have something um, that is to promote people with disabilities, make sure that you also have something to promote people who have religions. For instance, do you have a prayer room in your school? Do you have accessible lifts for people with disabilities? Do you have a school with a lot of noise? Because that is detrimental to people who are neurodivergent. So to make your space safe and inclusive, you're going to have to make a lot of changes in your school and they have to be made with equity in mind. Um, it is time for the news. And uh, then we will uh, welcome our interviewee, Danielle. So let's listen to the news. It's time for a fresh start to language learning. Pearson Edexcel's new student-centered French, German and Spanish 2024 GCSEs cater to the needs of all learners, regardless of their background, ability or reason for studying. Rooted in learned language knowledge, their assessments are transparent and accessible, allowing all students to showcase their language skills. Through inclusive and relatable content, the new Pearson Edexcel MFL GCSEs build a shared cultural capital that helps students develop an understanding of and appreciation for the wider world. Find out more at go.pearson.com forward slash MFL GCSE 24. This programme has been brought to you by The Happy Confident Company. Our clinically approved, ready-to-go, well-being and mental health programme will help your pupils thrive. In only 10 minutes a day, you'll be able to deliver social and emotional learning and well-being tools throughout your school. To find out more, visit us at www.happyconfident.com. This is Teachers Talk Radio. And this is Teachers Talk Radio news BBC News reports that the school run by Ruth Perry who took her own life after a critical Ofsted has been rated good after a new inspection Ms Perry died in January after receiving news her school was being downgraded from outstanding to inadequate Ms Perry's death prompted an outpouring of anger about the inspection system although Ofsted defended its grading process and said one-word gradings would not be scrapped. The latest report comments on the work done by the school to address previous weaknesses. The new report raises again the question of high-stakes inspections. MPs are to hold an inquiry in the autumn and will look at how the system is working. Ms Perry's sister, Professor Julia Waters, said in a statement, the reversal of the previous judgment in a matter of months illustrates why schools should be given the time to correct weaknesses before the final report is published, and that the latest judgment proves what all of those who knew Ruth and the school have known all along. Last month, Ofsted announced some changes which allow schools that were given an inadequate rating over safeguarding to be reinspected within three months, giving them a chance to be regraded if they have addressed concerns. Teachers' pay has been in the news again following two further days of strike action from teachers in England. The Daily Mirror reports that Education Secretary Gillian Keegan is continuing to be under pressure to publish pay proposals or risk strikes dragging on even longer. 
All the major teaching unions in England are conducting fresh ballots after rejecting a £1,000 one-off payment for 2023 and an average 4.5% pay rise for next year. The government referred the decision on pay to the pay review body, who has reportedly recommended a 6.5% pay rise. But the DfE continues to refuse to publish the advice. The Guardian reports on Labour's plans for education should they win the next general election. The article itself focused on plans for early years, which could see more graduate teachers working in nurseries and more nursery places in primary school settings. Shadow Education Secretary Bridget Phillipson said she wanted to put early years on an equal footing with schools to give children the best start in life. The TES gave further comment on Labour's plans as the party set out how it plans to boost teacher retention and improve standards. The plan includes giving early career teachers a one-off payment of £2,400 for staying in the profession and sending regional improvement teams to help schools. New teachers will be required to have QTS and they will also improve recruitment by cutting costs. The party, currently in opposition, has not made any comment on teacher pay. Finally, the BBC reports on what it describes as a crisis in waiting for children in care. In March, the government extended a ban on unregulated homes to children in care aged 16 and 17. This followed a BBC investigation which found some had been forced to live in caravans and barges and some had experienced abuse. The crackdown begins in October when Ofsted will begin inspections and all unregulated care settings will become illegal. However, some local authorities fear they will have to continue the use of unregulated accommodation usually in houses and flats in residential areas, because they will have no alternative. Regulated placements are suffering chronic staff shortages and a squeeze on places at the same time as a rise on numbers of children coming into care is causing continued issues. A DV spokesperson said it was the responsibility of local authorities to provide safe placements, but that it was investing £142 million over the next three years to ensure the transition to Ofsted registration is successful. This has been your Teachers Talk Radio News with Joe Fox. This is Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods, your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. Hello, this week I'm going to support a question everyone will see at the start of next year. It goes something like this. Hi Edu Twitter, can you reply with where you are so I can show my class how far a post on the internet can reach? With a bit of free tech, you can make this much more visual. I'm going to use Google Maps because it's free and most likely you'll have used Google Maps at some point in the past. So when you have all your responses, sign into Google, go to Maps and click on the menu next to the search box. That's the three lines that look like a burger. From the menu, select My Places. You'll now have four options, Lists, Labeled, Visited, maps click on maps and at the bottom select create map now you can give the map a title so you can find it next year for comparison and add all the places from your twitter replies simply type the name of the place when it appears with a blue point marker you can click the plus sign to add it to the map and then select the color to help it stand out when you've finished all places will be saved and you can access the map by following the first few steps menu my places maps there are loads of other great tools to use also. Measure the distance from your school to those places. Hit preview and go into the view only mode. Here you can select a place and you treat it to a short bio and an image of the area. So next time you're looking to bring a lesson to life, why not try using maps to help pupils see where places are in the world?
Do you have any top tips for mapping? Why not get in touch and tell us what you want to know about tech? I'm Steve Woods, and that was Two Minute Tech. Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods, your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. So let's um, meet up with Danielle, who, as I said, is a um, content writer or writer who's been working um, on decolonizing, amongst other things. So thank you very much, Danielle, for joining us today. You are um, very, very active in uh, decolonizing the curriculum movement. And I wanted to have your uh, view. I wanted to ask you questions about it because I think it's something that needs to be broadcast a lot. So first, Danielle, tell us um, what you do, what's your background, um, how come you came into education in the UK? Tell us more about yourself. Right. Well, thank you for inviting me to speak in the first place mode. Um, well, I've been in the UK for 40 years, and for those 40 years, I've been involved in education. I came in uh, with the dinosaurs in 1982 uh, as a foreign language assistant, and I was working in two schools. And I stayed, uh, like 50% of foreign language assistants did. Um, I then worked in colleges of further education and adult institutes. So that's in the 80s and the 90s. I set up the Department of Work, um, uh, of Langu well, Languages, the French Department of the Working Men's College in 1987. Mm -hmm. uh, because they didn't have French at the time. So we, I, I taught beginners and O-level in those days because it was, and also before GCSE, and it was also before the national curriculum. So it's very, uh, yes, it was a long time ago. Uh, I stopped teaching in adult education because I had children and uh, teaching in the evening uh, in central London was a little bit uh, tricky for me. Um, but in 1987, I started putting my second cap on, which is the educational publishing, mm -hmm. which I've been doing ever since. Um, and I started uh, writing magazines for a publisher called Mary Glasgow Publications. Um, they had four magazines and they're still going, but unfortunately not in the UK. Oh, aren't they? Uh, because um, I still know some teachers who are receiving the... Yes, uh, that's it. That will be the end this this year. So it's only in the US and Canada, I think, which is a, a terrible shame because they are lovely public publications. Mm -hmm. um, and I that led to other things, um, you know, uh, so from from the magazines, I was yeah. asked to then write and edit uh, of the French material, um, uh, like course books, and it just snowballed. <laughs> um, I wrote the BBC uh, course book for adult beginners called French Experience. Again, that was in the mid nineties. Um, I wrote plays and fiction, non-fiction readers, uh, apps, uh, digital resources. 
but I think the most most of my work was on course books. Um, I I did quite a lot of course books for Oxford University Press from primary to secondary with a keep. Um, and I still meet a lot of people that at conferences that remember Equipe and Equipe Nouvelle very well, either as students or as teachers. Um, I was very proud of that book, actually, and it won an award in 2000, so I was um, happy with that. And also uh, A-level with Elan. And that's when I really started thinking that actually culture was had to be put in teaching resources because it wasn't done very well. So I did, uh, and I published uh, France Live with Oxford University Press, which was a little book about culture in France. It was in English, um, but it was mostly to give cultural background to the learning of, of the language. Um, and now I'm mostly published for international markets, so for the International Baccalaureate and the IGCSE. Um, and also um, I've gone to the enemy as I'm now publishing for Cambridge University Press. Ooh, on the um, other side. Yes, <laughs> the other side, um, where I published uh, things for, as I said, the International Baccalaureate uh, course called Panorama Francophone very very uh well we've tried to 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 reflect um the diversity of the french speaking world in that book which is easier to do actually in the ib program which is international by nature mm -hmm. and uh an igcse book and i now publish um for uh another international publisher called lme Right, so more than 30 years producing resources that have shaped a generation of French learners, if I yes, understand you correctly. Yes, basically, and I know that I hear a lot, let's ditch the textbook, but I think in those days, textbooks were perhaps the most easily available uh, resource. Definitely. We're talking pre-internet for some yes, of them. <laughs> of course, 30 years yeah. ago, um, for yeah. sure, we didn't have uh, computer access and there was no, no, no other ways to get no. um, the resources you needed. Mm. Um, you say that people are saying ditch the, the textbooks, but I hear a lot of teachers who are actually complaining that their schools don't want to purchase books anymore um, because they say books that get damaged quickly and that it costs a lot of money and it's a lot of storage. But then the teachers say that they have to print a lot, which mm. is counterproductive if you want to save money. And also thinking of, you know, we cut trees to make paper. So is that an environment, environmentally friendly option? And I think there's still teachers who miss the good old days of using textbooks. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I mean, there are criteria to determine whether a textbook is a good textbook mm. or not. But I think that's another discussion. <laughs> yes, no, that's completely different. And it's also a matter of taste. Yes. And, and the criteria that were not chosen by the teachers, but by the exams, the exam boards and yes. the exam content. I mean, that was a big issue, actually, when I, when I left the uh, UK-based market. It's because of the endorsement by the... Um, by the example, then that changed a lot of what we were 
able to do. I mean, there are lots of, of constraint on the author that not many people actually realize unless you start writing yourself. Um, and, you know, there's, there are things that are imposed and things that are not allowed. It's a so, very rigid system. Yes. And uh, yeah. uh, working as a consultant, I can also have a little say in, in what other people um, produce, which is great. Mm -hmm. um, as I've been working as a, a yeah, you know, a consultant for decolonization on, yes. on some of the resources. Um, so I can sort of see what is being done, but, um, and I'm not always very happy with what is being done, but there, as I said, there are constraints. So, um, it's easy to criticize, but when you see it from the inside, it's quite a different story. <laughs> oh, I, I'm sure it's not an easy task. Now, I just wanted to, so we know you have a lot of experience. You've been producing resources. You've been thinking for more than 30 years on how to introduce French culture and French language in all its uh, complexity and beauty to um, a new public, the students who are learning. Uh, French at school, but you have also started thinking um, about diversity and about, as we say, decolonization. So could you pinpoint when you actually started thinking about this in your profession? Uh, <laughs> it's difficult to say, actually, because um, it's a bit like Moliere's bourgeois gentilhomme, you know, I think I was decolonizing without knowing I was doing yes. it. <laughs> um, because if, um, if I go back to where, um, when my sense, sensibility, uh, about that area started, actually it's, it goes a long way and it was actually rooted in many ways in my personal life and my childhood. And nothing um, in my life actually um, made it obvious for me to become that sensitive to these issues because I was white, middle class, uh, from a very small place in Brittany, um, you know, nothing except, um, and, and when you say pinpointed, it's, it's, it's not really pinpointing it, but it's something that uh, when you ask the question, it's sort of, automatically jumped to my mind and it has an impact on what I do actually um, is because my father went to Algeria as a conscript during the Algerian war mm -hmm. he was sent there for two years not wanting to go obviously but you know he had didn't to have go a choice. No. he didn't have a choice it was that or prison um, and he went, and he went to a small place called Biralater near Tebessa in Algeria. It was along the Ligne Maurice, so which was like the defense line with the Tunisian border. And he brought back some photos. Uh, and I've, I've grown up with those photos. They were fascinating for me that insight into a different world. He was, uh, so this was a desert. This was the Touareg, as we call them in, Fr in French, mm -hmm. the uh, Amazigh nomads in the late 50s, because we're talking 59. Yes. Uh, so it, it was like, wow, you know, a different world mm -hmm. from my tiny place in, in, in France. 
And and those photos, I still have them because they are very, very precious to me. Um, it's also um, the horror stories that he, he told, um, not from his own experience, because he was actually quite, you know, safe where he was, but his mates and uh, came back with horror stories from the war. And I was also shocked. And, and I'm talking um, before I was 10, because um, they, they were things around my area that I was already shocked by. And one of them was how the Arki, so the Algerians that were fighting for the French in the war, were treated when they came to France because they couldn't stay in Algeria because of this, they, you know, it was too dangerous. And they were, they were uh, housed in uh, appalling conditions in a place not far from where I lived. And that made me realize um, various things, really, that first of all, why did my father have to go there? Why was France there? Why was it French? Uh, I didn't know anything about, you know, capitalism and human <laughs> greed in those days, you know. Um, and I also knew, because of my father's experience, I also knew a bit more than my peers. And I realized that nobody cared um, about that um, war, which was not a war. It was not uh, called a war for It was not called a war. Le maintien de la paix, you know, sort of keeping mm -hmm. the peace. <laughs> and that sort of made me aware very early on of double standards that, um, you know, they were Deux poids de mesure, yeah. Typical double standards for for the French and the so-called French Algerian that were not treated like the others. And another thing that shocked me was my father's sense of guilt. And that stayed with me too. He loved the country, the Algerian, you know, Algeria. He loved the people. He, f he found them really, really... Um, proud and dignified and you know although they were um in that sort of position of you know being at war with yeah. uh, but he never dared going back because he was feeling guilty and that's that stayed with him and that stayed with me um and i noticed growing up that there was no Nothing. I, I learned nothing about that at school. Oh, it was mentioned much later in the 90s yeah. in some history book. I think it was one one page in a history book. Yeah. I learned nothing about it. And I was shocked from then, you know, uh, secondary school. Nobody's telling my dad's story. Um, it was actually, you know, um, hidden. Yeah, from from us, and then gradually I went to Paris and um, realized more. I was I had a boyfriend who was Greek and very Mediterranean looking, so mm -hmm. constantly, constantly stopped. Um, I lived in the République, which is the biggest uh, station tube station in Paris, and lots of police. And he was constantly stopped, but I wasn't. Um, I also had friends that were North African because I went to uh, Université de Paris 13, which was in the suburb, in the 9-3, you know, oh. the, 
yes famous, uh, <laughs> <urban> area <laughs> and and was friends with north african guys there and they'd lived a life that had had not dreamt of in my you know in my bubble yes. that um i had a comfortable flat in paris they were sharing a room and not just sharing a room they were sharing a bed uh, because they had, they couldn't afford um, anything else. So when one guy was, you know, doing night shift, the other one would sleep, and and so on. And that sort of made me aware of a lot of things. Um, and in my studies, I came across a book which I wanted to work on the translation. I did a master's in literary translation in England. And I came across a passage to India, which was of interest to me because my partner is Indian and I was fascinated by anything Indian. Uh, and I started reading the translation. And when I, when I re I realized that actually it needed decolonizing. I didn't call it that at the time, but I thought that the, the language used was uh, in the translation was completely inappropriate and inadequate and and actually quite racist mm -hmm. and i i wanted to retranslate it and um because the the novel itself is like a, a denunciation of colonial outrages mm -hmm. and you know the racial traumas of the raj and and the and the translation was not doing that at all so all that sort of shaped really from from then on, and then having an Indian partner living in Broadwater Farm Estate in Tottenham uh, soon after the riots of '85 um, opened my eyes as well to what it was like to be racialized. You say um, because obviously none of that affects me personally. Uh, well, it does now because you're the partner of someone who is not white. So yeah, you had to but, live through his experiences, but you you did exper experience yeah. it. But I don't. If I go out in the world, I don't experience what he's experienced. Of yeah. course. Um, and and do you have children with your uh, Indian partner? Yes. So yes. as a mother, you might also have had to deal with, you know racism uh, in the playground and having to deal with the impact in your own children that might have happened i didn't actually because oh, okay. my my children are awfully white so, okay. <laughs> so you did. and so. as my son put it uh when um when we had the scare of having perhaps le pen as mm, our president 2001. Yeah. yeah my son was uh well he wasn't 10 then he sort of was worried about it because we talked about it and he said you know is 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 my dad not going to be able to go to france and i you know i was saying well i don't know that's the thing you know it can lead to extreme um situations with this sort of politics and he said what about me because my color is inside my skin Oh, that's a beautiful image. Because he's white and was blonde, um, but he felt Indian and he felt half Indian. And he said, what about me? You know, where, 
ma couleur est à l'intérieur de ma peau. It's a beautiful image. I love how children come out with the most poetic yeah. things. Completely naturally. Yeah. And a poet would have to slave for years on, on the perfect <laughs> sentence and the child just comes out with it. Yeah. It's magic. Um, I have the same um, situation. I have two children. One who is white, um, blue-eyed, and one who is um, mixed race. And, and um, I had to, I mean, my son was the victim of some racist slur in his international London school. Um, it was called the N-word a few times. Mm -hmm. And um, with my daughter, it's obviously never happened because she, she's white of appearance. And, uh, but, but I still felt some, there was an occasion when I was in a shop with her and she was really little and she looked like a mini Shirley Temples with curled, blonde curls. <laughs> and I was next to her. And as I'm a mixed race woman, people assumed the, the child was alone. So they were like, Oh, th there's a child on her own. And, and I had to say, Oh no, she's with me. And they looked at me and they assumed automatically that I was the nanny. <laughs> yes, <laughs> of course. So it it just shows um, when you're a mother and your child is um, of a different color. There's some weird situations happening. Yes, and then as soon as one obviously looks non-white, there's issues about racism starting from a very young age. So uh, your child never experienced it, but he felt maybe that otherness that my yes. son feels. Because obviously his otherness shows through his skin shade, so it's really interesting. But I, I do, I have to go back to what you said. I didn't know we were going so far back to the Algerian war with France um, in the process of decolonizing, because that was that it was still a colony. So I love yes. how you, your father introduced that the idea of we shouldn't be there or we do not have any reason to be there and what mm -hmm. we do there is wrong morally and you felt it accurately and oh accurately. very accurately yeah and it just shows that children have a very strong moral sense and um you you were evidence of that you felt that what the state was doing was morally wrong and that's spurred you onto that journey of just you know making things right so yes, and, and being shocked by things as well, being shocked and wanting to do something about it. I am not, I'm not really an activist in the sense that I don't go down on, in the, on, you know, on the street and I, I, I just don't, I, you know, I work in the dark sort of thing. I want to, to nibble at things so that, you know, um, I can do my bit. Um, and that really shocked me, um, when you were asking what, you know, what started me in the, in my work to, uh, with the decolonization was, as obviously, you know, what I said about my childhood, but I think it was the trigger that I thought, no, 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 this is not going to happen is when I was told, um, at, uh, one of the publishers that I was working for where the um, publications were going to the States, the United States, that I could not have black faces on the cover. I could not have disabled children in the, in the, on the cover. Um, and because that would put off the readers in the 
in that part of the states where um, the the consultant was from. Uh, that made me acutely aware of the need for representation because that was excluding anything that was not remotely what they wanted to see, which was white, middle class, etc. It just shows how they don't understand how um, the publishing works, because why would you um, reduce your readership to such a small I mean, it's, a, it's still a minority in numbers of white middle class people, you know, mm -hmm. there's a big world out there. Why would you reduce it so much? It shows that it's, it's more than blindfold, really, uh, on, on the part of that person. So when did this happen? What kind of time was it? Time frame? 1987. 1987. Okay. So things have changed. Yes. Things I mean, have changed. Thank God for that. Um, I just noticed when I was in France the, over the spring term that on the, on TV now there's presenters who are uh, people of colors and it was rare in the yes. late nineties and early noughties. And now mm, a lot of them are people from uh, yes we had audrey pulvar and that was that it. was it yeah and she's yes. from la reunion i think um and a long time after um i can't remember the name of the uh the 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 black journalist that was on the bbc but that's one of the things when i first came to england i thought wow <laughs> a black face on on the um main news not yeah. uh you know something about overseas or you know it was main mainstream yeah and now we see people from south yeah. the south so Asian it is continent. yeah Just it is moving it yeah. is moving but it's i remember other things that really shocked me um and that were um maybe more insidious than just not having a black face on the cover. I remember, for instance, um, the, uh, some publishers' reluctance to, to mention, uh, you know, Afro hair or, you know, anything to do with skin coloring or whatever, because that would be offend offensive, that could be misconstrued. I mean, basically, we were walking on eggs about that yes um the, and i still hear that when i, I talk about decolonizing with uh, educators they are telling me i'm afraid of saying something wrong yes and i think it stems from the severe backlash people can get sometimes when they say something that might seem offensive on social media or and um i i do always tell them that we should accept that people make mistakes and they should just be able to say, oh, I apologize if that was offensive. I didn't mean to hurt people's feelings. But we shouldn't use it as a, as a stick and beat people mm. with because um, it's not helping anyone, <laughs> really. Yeah. If people are scared of mentioning uh, a skin color, I will always remember there was a new personal instructor at the gym and um, someone asked, oh, what does she look like? Because they wanted to to know what she looked like and people were like oh well she's mid-height uh short hair and she's uh, wearing a pink t-shirt and no one said she's black and to me it's it was ridiculous because yeah. that, that would have been the first thing i said because there was not that many uh female black personal instructor in that gym and if you want to describe someone and recognize that person in a crowd you would start by okay so she's black and she's got short hair and mid-height 
but no one said her skin color. Mm. And I w- because it was mostly white people and they felt scared of saying she's black. Mm, and yeah. I was like, this is going too far <laughs> because yeah. this is ridiculous. You know, it's like avoiding the elephant in the room. Start with mm. what's the most distinctive trait. Obviously, if we were in a Nigerian gym, we wouldn't say she's black because everybody would be <laughs> black. And so it wouldn't, it wouldn't be an appropriate yeah. way of describing. But here, in London, it felt very awkward. So I don't think we, this is the, the best way to decolonize, trying to not avoid, to avoid saying the obvious. I think it's still happening though. I think yes. it's still happening. Um, very much so. I've, I suggested actually that, you know how in language, in languages, uh, you sort of have description, you know, as you said, the hair, the eyes, and, um, and there are still, uh, sort of reluctance to say that uh, the skin is black or dark or whatever yes. um, as part of a physical description. And to my mind, it's, you know, it's it's the same as being blonde or having your eyes blue or whatever. Yes. But unless that's normalized, it's always going to be a problem. Yeah, and it just shows how important the work is. Um, when I teach my students how to describe themselves in French or in Spanish, I give them words to say that their skin is um, olive complexion yeah. or uh, brown or black. And whenever they say it, they kind of giggle because they feel mm. awkward. And most of my students happen to be black or Asian, the minorities, the, the white uh, British in my school. And I'm always telling them, uh, look at my skin. My skin is um, kind of brown or light, light brown. And I just say as if it was absolutely normal because it is normal. I mean, it's color. Yeah, skin. exactly. But that's but not happening yet. Yeah. 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 They still feel uh, that awkwardness. And I really want this to change. I want people to be able to describe themselves and say, oh, well, I've got Afro, Fritzy or curly, or I've got straight hair or, you know, it's just... And a normal body yeah. uh, attributes, physical attributes. Yeah. It's time for a fresh start to language learning. Pearson Edexcel's new student-centered French, German and Spanish 2024 GCSEs cater to the needs of all learners, regardless of their background, ability or reason for studying. Rooted in learned language knowledge, their assessments are transparent and accessible, allowing all students to showcase their language skills. Through inclusive and relatable content, the new Pearson Edexcel MFL GCSEs build a shared cultural capital that helps students develop an understanding of and appreciation for the wider world. Find out more at go.pearson.com forward slash MFL GCSE 24. This programme has been brought to you by The Happy Confident Company. Our clinically approved, ready-to-go well-being and mental health programme will help your pupils thrive. In only 10 minutes a day, you'll be able to deliver social and emotional learning and well-being tools throughout your school. To find out more, visit us at www.happyconfident.com. So you had that very strong moral conscience that made you question the status quo. Um, so you obviously also had friends from many different ethnic ethnicity, and then your partner was from the, is from the South Asian continent. So you experienced 
uh, by proximity, the racism they went through on a daily basis. So yep. what made you decide that you wanted to be proactive in the fight against racism in your job? You said 1987 when uh, someone mentioned it in America. Was it the, the trigger and then you started thinking every day I need to... Uh, it made that was the trigger to me thinking you need representation in the resources because I was at you know I was that was the beginning of my uh, career as a writer so I hadn't had that experience of writing yet but yeah it was one of the first it was a magazine it was one of the first magazines that I did and and to to be told that it was like a slap on the face to me um And, and that's, that was the trigger. And there were loads of little things after that. As I said, you know, not being able to mention uh, skin color or whatever, or being told, I remember writing a, a, a short story about a child coming from Africa with his parents. So immigrating to France from Africa and saying that he was missing things from his country. Mm -hmm. That was censored by the editor. Because that, and, you know, and him not being happy, not necessarily, you know, because oh. of difficulties, um, you know, the, 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 the looks he was getting and, and things. So it was a, sh a very short story and, you know, in a textbook. And I was told, nope, you can't have that because that's negative. That's a negative vision of France. France is a terre d'accueil, land a of refuge. Something. Yes. And therefore, you should be seen to be happy in France. And I thought, what? <laughs> um, but, you know, uh, that story never, never got published. Um, and the, oh, that, and that's what I was saying. That, that was more insidious in some ways than being told no blackface, because that, that was representative of something quite, You know, that France is this sort of, Perfect. Um, Perfect you know, place. example of égalité, fraternité, and so on, you know, and, and there was no questioning it. No, because it's a myth and um, they yeah. were propagating the myth. And we know now, because we've watched the news over the last week, <laughs> we know <laughs> that the, this is not the truth. <laughs> People live in France and they're very unhappy at the conditions they're in. And also, I just think it's, it's so, you know, black and white, uh, excuse my pun, to <laughs> think that <laughs> if you go to France, everything's going to be rosy and happy. And that if you leave a country, everything in that country was um, bad or not, not good enough. It's not the truth. And uh, this is also something I've always felt. It's that there's a very good aspect of culture and uh, life in uh, the countries we come from, when we come from uh, th the third world countries or low income countries. And um, the West might benefit from using some of these aspects. Um, it's not just all the other countries who need to follow what the Westerners are doing. Sometimes the Westerners would benefit from following what other countries are doing. And by not publishing that story you prepared and you wrote, they are still presenting that idea that the West is the universal the <laughs> perspective that everybody has mm. to follow. And this is deeply 
wrong because we know where it leads. Uh, when we live as, as a Westerner, we degrade our environment, uh, we, we pollute it, we, um, we destroy a lot of our resources. And also, are we happier? I'm not sure. <laughs> I'm not sure we are. When you see the, the, the youth, uh, when you see the high level of mental health crisis in education and so many children who are self-harming, depressed, I think in the West, we do a lot of things wrong that we need to deal with, but by pretending everything is perfect, we are not acting on, on the issues we're facing. And I think in France, we are particularly good at thinking we're perfect. There, yes. um... <laughs> There's a bit of um, um, arrogance in, um, in the French culture. We, we always think that we have so much to teach others, but it, it goes only one way, mm. doesn't it? So um, we're just going to have a little break now. And um, we are going to go back to talking to Danielle for the second part of the interview. So, Danielle, we were talking about how you um, started working by promoting people who look different and writing stories about people who come from low-income countries and their experiences when they come to the West. So what is your main motivation um, nowadays when you think about writing resources? What do you have in mind? What's your perspective? Um, I think now, um, well, things, as, as we were saying, things have moved on. So through the resources, uh, uh, you know, we we can open windows for the kids um, to to discover a new world like I did when I was a kid with the Algerian photos. And but I think we're on the cusp of something, um, you know, go going from just representation to actual decolonization, if for lack of a, I, I don't know, it, it's a harsh term, I, you know, it's quite hard to, to use. But um, for instance, I've always made a point that I wanted to um to feature francophonie in the in my resources and I did and there are examples of life which are um always researched so it's very time consuming but it's always researched and accurate um of you know daily life in 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 Af North, uh, North Africa or West Africa etc um, but that was still seen until not so long ago as tokenistic um, and unessential. So teachers were not valuing that very much. And we had comments back saying, oh, I didn't do that page because it was not about France. So um, I tried to make it more integral to the, um, to the actual content of, of the resource so that you couldn't skip it. <laughs> um, uh, which we did, which we could do uh, with my co-authors uh, in the Panorama Francophone, because that was all about French-speaking countries. So all, uh, you know, um, we couldn't just be Eurocentric on that because it's, the students are from all over the world. Um, but 
they I think now we can start exploring the underpinnings of francophonie. And I myself have moved away from using the word francophonie uh, as much as I can, because to my mind, it has quite a lot of connotations, which I don't really like. And um, so, for instance, with my colleague, Susie Buell, we're trying to work on um, providing teachers with materials that will uh, help them um, explore what I want to call the francosphere. And I know it's used um, uh, in other places because I think francophonie is very much what the French state is imposing. Uh, and it's also exclusive of other identities and languages. Um, whereas to, to say that Senegal is, is uh, francophone is completely wrong. It's Wolofon and a few, a, a part of, of the community of the population speaks French. So it's, it's a wrong term. And I think francosphere is more inclusive. I mean, it's the sphere, it's the globe, it's, you know, and, and French is one of the languages spoken in those countries belonging to the francosphere. And that's, to me, that's the words actually matter. Oh, very much so. Um, we teach languages, so it's all about the words and yeah. the um, etymology. Francosphere is, uh, is also the idea that it's one way of seeing the world, but there's many other ways. Exactly. Yeah, and, um, and as I, I, I teach online and uh, I have as a background uh, an upside down map and the um, the, the, the kids asked me, why did you put your map upside down? And I said, it's not upside down because today I'm in New Caledonia and that's in New Caledonia. This is, you know, how you see the world and uh, why are you in New Caledonia? And I start explaining. So, you know, it doesn't need a lot um, to, to start uh, a discussion on those issues. And I think that's what resources can help teachers do is starting uh, a, a dialogue on those issues. Yes, I mean, it blew my mind the first time I saw a map um, of the world, but with Russia in its center, because I did a year of Russian language a long time ago. And I had never realized that we always put France. <laughs> yeah, of course, <laughs> Europe, yeah. <laughs> and then when I saw that map, I was like, oh my God, this just shows how we manipulate learning in a way that we don't even realize. We don't realize we put ourselves always at the center as if we mattered so much. We don't. We matter in the sense that we are all together on this planet. But yeah, it's so important to change um, the, the, the maps we use. You're right. It's something that I need to practice even more with my students. And it's a good way of starting a lesson because they'll have lots of comments to make. <laughs> um, so you have lots of motivations to bring the idea of change, the Francosphere, seeing French as a medium and not as something that overrules everything else. But what is your vision of education? What are you aiming for, let's say in the next five years or in the next 10 years? What would be for you the, the way to educate the children who are going to be born in the next couple of years? 
Uh, <clears throat> how many words am I allowed? <laughs> um, well, I mean, my my partner is a, is a teacher, a retired teacher in, in inner London, and his view, uh, and I quote him, is that education is a basic human right, like food and shelter for all, and and to deny it is a crime against humanity. And that's my vision of education too. My father, again, my father was a teacher, and that was very much his view as well. So I've I've been, you know, bathing in that um, from from forever. Um, I mean, in terms of you know the decolonizing agenda, I think the the school curriculum should educate to eradicate social concepts like racism. How we do that is is tricky but i think as has shown has been shown in france very recently we it's very difficult to move on and unless education is there to do that it's not going to happen it's the first step to anything uh, yeah. it always goes through education and you can't really and yes yes uh, i'm listening and what I find difficult, so my, I, I'm, I'm very tentative in this um, decolonizing movement. I, I have no answer. I only have questions. I have certain ways of thinking of doing things that I think could help. I'm, I'm, you know, not saying that they are right or whatever, but I feel that there are people thinking about this. There, are, there is a lot of resources on actually what it is to decolonize, how to go about it, uh, how to recognize systemic or institutionalized racism. But then it stays very much up there in the sphere of academia. And there is a step, there is like a step missing between that and then putting it in baby talk for our little ones. Mm -hmm. And that's what I'm trying to do, basically. I'm trying to in to educate myself to to so i attend millions of webinars and i go to festivals of social justice and westminster university recent i try and, and do as much as that as possible it's very very abstract and what i feel my job is 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 to make that concrete and manageable and usable for teachers that are already have their agenda is already very full so to actually expect them to take that aspect and and add it to the pot is we need to help for that i think yes, and the resources the that is that are used i think can can help with that it's um by you, you talk about baby talk but it's also baby steps um yeah. it's not a, ch a change mm. i mean it's been going on for decolonizing politically has been happening in the 60s. Um, we still have a lot of work to do. There's still countries that are colonized. <laughs> you know, I was talking to my partner who happens to be Danish and um, Denmark colonized Greenland many years ago and Greenland still depends on Denmark, <laughs> which makes, if you count Den Denmark's territory, it's a tiny little country, but as they have Greenland, under their control, then it becomes a very big player on the world scene. 
So we still have countries that have been colonized and they're not independent yet. So it's still not finished that political process. But now we're still working on the cultural process. And as you said, we started decolonizing our minds ourselves in our own private journey. You started, I guess your dad started it somehow, and then you became more aware of it in the 80s. And I'm, I'm working on it now since I've discovered the, the term decolonizing when I was at university. But we do, it's, it's just a, a start. But the aim is definitely to eradicate racism. We don't want it. I don't want it for my grandchildren. I know it's not realistic to assume that my children won't have to experience it anymore, but I would love for my grandchildren not to have to deal with that. And mm. I think when you live in London, you're lucky because it is an international city and people are from all walks of life and it works. It's a peaceful place. I mean, we've had riots, 2010 riots, due to police brutality, just the same um, situation as in France. But it seems like in London, if you are from um, North Africa or if you are from a former colony, you can get a job and you can get by life if you want to. There's still too many countries where it's harder, for instance, France. So our vision of education is definitely to eradicate that racism. And I think your your job and what you do with Susie is really, really important. So could you tell us more about your project with Susie? What is it exactly that you do when you meet up with Susie? Um, what are you two preparing? <laughs> um, it's a it's it's happening very slowly because life uh, has got in the way for both of us. Um, but basically, the aim of the game is to, uh, for me anyway, is to do the research, you know, see how, um, what, what there is out there that can be used um, and because it's very hard for teachers to do the research that is um, necessary to find out about life outside of France in, in, in French-speaking areas. Um, you probably can do that very easily online now, but you still get uh, an authentic piece of um, of text or a video or whatever, which is not necessarily accessible to language to the uh, language learners uh, so therefore the teacher would then have to make that accessible then you need to uh, uh, to exploit that somehow so you know through various activities so you need to write the those activities that is that is a long job and that's what we are trying to do we're trying to do that research make the the um the input accessible and develop some sort of exploitation and that can be done maybe you know as a starter i know susie has written some uh, easy starters easily you know, usable mm -hmm. starters um and maybe you can you know on i don't know we we maybe have like a a, a country every month you you visit a different country or and there there would be um material for you materials for you to use so that's the idea <laughs> it's a brilliant idea and i have to say that susie 
has been tra traveling in the Francosphere. <laughs> yes. <laughs> in Senegal mostly as well. And uh, she took lots of pictures with, um, it's half linguistics, half cultural. So it's, it's great resources for French teachers. Um, you did say that there was a lot of constraints on the, um, from the exam board and from the publishers that makes your job difficult as a content writer for uh, teachers. So if you had a magic wand, what would you do to make your job easier so that you could reach out to more teachers and provide better resources in order to decolonize the curriculum? Oh, if I had a magic wand, you know what I'd do? Tell me. I'd get rid of exams. Oof. Well, I'd get rid of exams. Danielle. <laughs> <laughs> um, this has been the bane of my life when, as a course book writer, oh, can't do that because it's not in the exams. Yes. Um, so, unless we assess what we value uh, and not uh, value what we assess, it's not, a culture is not going to happen unless it's assessed. So how do you assess cultural knowledge? I'm not too sure, but there might be a way with a magic wand, I'm not sure. But I think that the exams have driven out intercultural knowledge um, because that was not, you know, the mechanical um, language teaching that is accessible. So that's what I would do um, to um, to help to in help the thing. But that, I know that's not going to happen. Okay, but maybe again with another um, wish of the of the wand, you could have maybe different sorts of exams, or you know, more like grades in music, where you're ready to. You know, you could be assessed in how much you know uh, culturally or when you're ready. And therefore, the pressure is different. But I know that's, again, that's me so being exams in cuckoo land. <laughs> no, no, exams are a bit of an issue. I have to say, when I first looked at the curriculum here, I was shocked that there was nothing about the culture and just the country itself. Um, for instance, there's no requirements for students who learn French to know that France is a republic, that we have uh, two chambers, that we uh, have a president and a prime minister, that the president is elected every five years. There was no requirements to know that. Hmm. And I was disappointed. Until A-level. Until A-level. But that's too yeah. late. That's too yeah. late because, <laughs> you know, we want the population to know these things. Um, and not everybody does A-levels in any way. And also, when you try to become a British citizen, you have to learn a book of <laughs> cultural knowledge. And I was thinking, why don't we do something not as hard and dry, obviously, because it's for children, but just something about what it is to, to go to France, what, what does France look like, um, something about um, the territories, you know, like Guadeloupe, Martinique. Most of our students happen to discover that if the teacher mentions it, but they're not going to be required mm. to know that. And I find that really short-sighted. So if you could have an impact definitely on the exams content, that'd be great. 
Now you did say no exams, and now my teacher <laughs> is panicking because this is sometimes the only thing that motivates some of the students. <laughs> so. Yes, I was. It was in jest, but yes, it. Um, it's just hopefully, hopefully, um, things are going to go the right way with you know as for for people like us, you and me and many others on, you know, the emphasis on, on culture. So let's wait and see. Okay. <laughs> but so far, um, the emphasis on culture only depends on teachers who are passionate about it. Yes. And I'm sure yeah. there is a lot because teachers chose to learn French and to teach it because they liked it. So they're likely to talk about um, the culture that goes with it and the food. Let's not forget the food. <laughs> I always do lessons about French food and the kids like it because it's, it's got some weird ingredients <laughs> like the snails and the oysters and, and also it's fun and they will remember that. Um, and when you talk about snails, another thing to talk about the Francosphere, you can mention that in some African speaking, French speaking countries, they eat snails that are huge. Hmm. <laughs> as big as my hand so it um the children always love to talk about it um but let let's go back to um your uh, vision so you said that you would change the exam content at least so that it includes a little bit more about culture and what about um just the content of the curriculum is there anything you would want all students to do two or three years of french language to know after these two or three years of learning in terms of culture or in any term um whether it's decolonizing or french as a language whatever you think is essential for a british student to know after studying french in school um I think in terms of language, it almost doesn't matter what you, you know, the, the, the topics could be quite flexible. Um, in, in terms of, as you, as you said, you, you said yourself, there are a few things that could, um, could be helpful to know about France and, and that's um, again in the IB program. That's much more. Um, there's a, a greater emphasis on on um, on comparing countries, and I think we don't do that enough in the UK uh, curriculum. So they learn how to to compare um, their daily life or whatever you know, uh, topic. Um, and that's, that's a must, they must do that. And they must do that at the exam. And that's from the scratch. I mean, they, um, um you know, the course book I wrote Panorama mm -hmm. Francophone was for the ab initio. So we're talking beginners, uh, <clears throat> as older beginners, you know, 15, 16 year olds, but they don't have any language, but from, from day one, they that that is part of the deal that they have that and i would that's what i would like to see more of to have that time for reflection on similarities and differences um and obviously on on accepting the differences and yes, not mocking them you know 
um, and being much more aware of what it is to be in somebody else's skin. Yes, I think um, practicing tolerance is um, a good thing um, um, can do in learning a language. And I think we can still do that, but as you say, in this country, but I think, as you say, it needs to be from, from the teacher who happens to be quite into that. Whereas in, as I said, in the IB, you have to, there's no question. It is, mm -hmm. uh, it is assessed. Um, <clears throat> and um, yeah. No, and I was uh, going to say that it, you know, that's one of my, what I would hope to be able to do is to help teachers include that in, you know, more as a matter of fact, really, and by by providing them with something that, you know, they could do, they could do easily. It doesn't need to be a lot of things, but I think it's quite scary to, um, you know, if you if you're told decolonize your curriculum, I think that's quite scary. Um, it's and a big word. it's a big word. It's it's a big thing to do. Uh, and in, I was um, I, I lack confidence sometimes to, you know, is it? You need to learn to, edu as I said before, to educate yourself a little bit more, to know where you're going, to know what you're saying, to to know, um, like like in France, you know, I've I've discovered things very recently by you know it's like peeling the skin you know of the of the onions you know it's the peeling literally things off my eyes i mean and that's from somebody as you know i said i was quite sensitive to those issues but i didn't know so much about french history and french yes. colonial history um that i was you know it scared me that how much is kept from us yeah, it's. Uh, I was flabbergasted when I, I was looking into the origins of the funding of the Eiffel Tower, for instance, and I'm, I, I wrote a piece about it. There's so much in the colonial history that is kept under wrap, because if you address it, then you have to change the present. And that's yes. a big fear that a lot of people have. You do talk about the daunting task. Um, when we meet, and we meet at conferences, we've seen uh, teachers coming to us and saying, I don't know how to start decolonizing, even though I really want to, because I feel like I'm going to say the wrong thing. And also mm. people saying that they feel guilty. What do you have to say about this feeling um, of white guilt? What are your impressions on this? Well, as, yeah, as I said, I think if it's, it's difficult as a white person in particular, I think, to find your your voice in this because you could you don't want to come across as you know i'm aware now i want to decolonize i have the answers and this is how we're going to do it okay. uh, at the same time uh if the weight of the whole colonial history is on your shoulders you're not going to be able to move and it's so it's it's finding that in between place and finding your your voice now i when i went to uh Westminster uni the other day um i met two canadian academics called aj paris ram and alex kashnabish i think you i'm not sure how you pronounce their names 
Anyway, they've written a book called Frequently Asked White Questions. Mm -hmm. And their talk was because they're in Canada, obviously, the racial issues, are, you know, are with. Uh, and they had uh, meetings where white people came and asked questions about race and it developed into a book. And so they've written this book called Frequently Asked White Questions. And they were saying that, you know, they're they basically to sort of relax into it you know and 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 make mistakes as long as you learn from them they're good mistakes to learn and um and start yeah start educating yourself by looking into what's available and i i did that and i think i we talked about it at the conference about looking at uh you know because of French being my my uh, la the language that I teach um of um looking in uh Liliane Lilian Thuram's book yes. called La Pensée Blanche which is um translated into uh, English in white thinking and and I learned such a lot from that book of things that I still didn't know I had no idea because uh, I've never I'd never heard that like about the bumidum, you know, yes. the French, sort of the equivalent of the French windrush. I never, never, never heard that. Uh, and so much like that. And he's got also got a good website um, called uh, Fondation Lilian Thuram and loads of information there. Um, Fondation pour la mémoire de l'esclavage, anything about, you know, the memory of slavery. Again, a lot of resources there that are really interesting and maybe not straight away usable for primary obviously but you know just for your own um just to just to see the extent of what it, we don't know really um and it's, it's one... a very important book you you're right to quote it Lilian Thuram uh, La Pensée Blanche White Thinking yeah um and I was I learned a lot from uh, a three-part documentary, um, which I saw on TV called Blood and Tears, the French Decolonization. It's sort of quite, um, yeah, it punches, you know, um, and if you can get to see that, I think you learn such a lot. Um, and yeah, and basically once you know a little bit more then you feel more comfortable talking about them as well of about these issues um, i think you're right it has to go through um being self-taught um educating oneself making sure we've done our research before we start talking about something but also having enough uh, empathy to recognize when we don't know Mm. And saying, "Oh, I don't know. I'm going to look into it instead of having a an exactly, answer. yeah." Because, as I said, it's not. I mean, I don't feel guilty about not knowing about those things because I was never taught them. Yes, and and work. You know, unless you're an academic, uh, looking into that, researching into that, it was not. It's never appeared on mainstream media. 
I'm thinking, for instance, about the BUMIDOM, you know, the, the Bureau de, de, de Migration and all that. It's basically when, you know, the same as Windrush here, but I had never, no idea. And none of my educated, <laughs> inverted commas, friends had ever heard of that either. Even people that are very politically engaged and aware. So there's no, no, uh, shame in, in not knowing. I think as long as you're interested in finding out, as you said, and that, that is enough. Yes. To start the journey. Yeah. Yeah. Curiosity to want to understand the past because otherwise we don't, we don't have a grasp of the present and then we can't change anything. It really is. It starts by uh, having a historical knowledge. Um, I'm a passion, I'm passionate about history and I think you are as well. Um, and this is the only way we can, we can change. By, by knowing what happened before. Um, I'm conscious of the time, so I'm going to ask you my last question. So if you want to decolonize the curriculum and you're a teacher, what would you advise them to start with? I think representation. So just making sure that um, you know, it's not just white, French, middle class, you know, as, as resources where, I mean, I'm talking about resources because that's my area of expertise, of but, course. um, uh, you know, monsieur and madame and their 2.5 children living on the, you know, in a pavillon outside Paris. That is not the world. You know, we live in a connected world. We cannot not do, you know, not represent mm -hmm. it. Um, and so that representation, I think, is, is the first step. Um, if you're talking about food, um, there's, you know, millions of things you can look up on the net about, you know, what, what the main dishes are in Senegal or whatever. Um, also, depending on how, um, your, you know, the sort of, uh, children you're teaching, because, in in a in a mixed like London in a mixed um, ethnic group, they will be they'll have their own experience. If you're not in a mixed class, it's even more important, I think, to represent um, you know the uh, the francosphere because those children might not have that experience and that um, diversity. Um, and then make it. I think from you know. I think photos and visual material are powerful. I know that from experience, <laughs> as I said about my dad's photos from Algeria. Um, they can stay with you. So I think, um, again, rather than maybe the sort of bland textbook photo um, that you tend to see, um, look for... Other photos, I mean, with the net now, it's just incredibly easy. Um, you know, if you have a school, it could be a school somewhere else. All this is what Susie and myself will try and do in Francosphere. But yeah, it's just taking a little bit of time. So there's representation and making it a regular thing so that it's not just the, you know, the, the, the odd thing that you do once in a while. I think it needs to be regular. 
And I, I always say it shouldn't be Black History Month once. Ah, uh, I hate that. No, it's each month. <laughs> yes, um, and it it just can be light touch, really, yes, at the beginning. It doesn't have to be all this, you know, pressure on your shoulders of doing all this well, and um, and also um you know if you can have links with other schools that are in those countries uh, there are places you can go for that that's the, i think that's the best really um to to put children in touch with each other with you know uh even zoom links or um um or any and other and yeah any other means so of um and not just France. I know France is nearer, but it, for some schools, um, it's quite far. <laughs> France is like not something that's uh, uh, accessible. So you might as well, you know, travel further afield online as it's now available. Yeah, I have to say the internet is a teacher's friend. It's so much yeah. easier to teach languages with the internet now. And as as language teachers, I think, uh, we are well placed to be um, border cr crossers, you know, and that's that's one of I think that's one of our responsibilities is to to make sure that we cross those borders and that we show a different world to them and to the to the children and and it does it the the more regular it is the 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 more normal it becomes. And hopefully, the more addictive it will be for for the learners. I love that image. I always thought myself as an ambassador pre presenting my culture, but I like that idea you have of being um, people enable the opening of borders um, because at the, it's it's very contemporary. You know, there's more and more borders and strict borders, and refugees are stopped or they they're left to fend for themselves in the sea. So the idea of being the one who, who lets people cross from one side of the river to the next, or one side of the ocean to the next, is uh, again very poetic <laughs> and, and very apt to show how important our job is. We're not just teaching grammar, we're teaching empathy as well. So Yes, and I think we, we really are well placed to to do that um, when when we when we can and and that I mean I've always liked I'm a I'm a bit of a nosy Parker I've always liked like peeping through in pe other people's houses you know the windows and seeing what is their front room like and what is you know and what that's do <laughs> what do they what are they eating and I think that's quite. It's quite nice to be able to do that in class, you know, look at what, you know, the, the bedroom of these children in some, you know, Africa or whatever. In Papua um, New Guinea or some other places, yeah. Yeah, it's um, as long as we as long as we make sure that we're not um, carrying stereotypes. That we are respectful. That, that's, that's another thing that, um, you know, often... It's we we have um, shown Africa, for instance, as you know poor and everything, and it's just negative. Whereas yeah, there are beautiful things too, but we need to show that as well. 
Okay. Thank you very much, Danielle, um, for this uh, interview. It was wonderful. Thank you very much for having me on. <laughs> it's time for a fresh start to language learning. Pearson Edexcel's new student-centered French, German and Spanish 2024 GCSEs cater to the needs of all learners, regardless of their background, ability or reason for studying. Rooted in learned language knowledge, their assessments are transparent and accessible, allowing all students to showcase their language skills. Through inclusive and relatable content, the new Pearson Edexcel MFL GCSEs build a shared cultural capital that helps students develop an understanding of and appreciation for the wider world. Find out more at go.pearson.com forward slash MFL GCSE 24. This programme has been brought to you by The Happy Confident Company. Our clinically approved, ready-to-go, well-being and mental health programme will help your pupils thrive. In only 10 minutes a day, you'll be able to deliver social and emotional learning and well-being tools throughout your school. To find out more, visit us at www.happyconfident.com. You've been listening to Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you next time on Teachers Talk Radio.